0: If you'll turn with me, please, this morning to the book of Acts, chapter 1. The book of Acts, chapter 1. Over the years, as I've oftentimes been addressed with the question, how is the church doing? Uh, It has many times been my answer that there are always uh, burdens to be concerned about, always blessings to rejoice in. And I have found that to be true. Um, One of the blessings that we rejoice in is the work here. Um, It has been a a great and an ongoing encouragement to us to see the the work of Christ uh, in the planning of the Emmanuel Church of Winston-Salem. And I am sincere in saying it's a blessing to be in your midst, to worship with you this morning, and just to see you and to have this time together. My purpose in the ministry of the Word this morning is to draw our attention to the subject of corporate prayer. Corporate prayer, in this context, the adjective corporate means pertaining to a united group of persons. United or combined into one. In the Book of Acts, as we look at the early church being birthed and developing, one of the most conspicuous features of that church was that they were a united group of believers lifting up their voices together to God. They're being united as one in seeking God's face in prayer was one of their defining features. And I want to seek to demonstrate that, uh, making application along the way, by way of four observations drawn primarily from the book of Acts. And the first is this, the New Testament church was actually born in the context of a group of disciples united as one, seeking the Lord together in prayer. The New Testament church was actually birthed in the framework of a group of disciples united together, seeking the Lord's face together in prayer. It won't take time to read uh, from Acts chapter 1 at any length, but I'll assume that many of you are somewhat familiar with its contents. Jesus, having been crucified outside of Jerusalem three days later, had, had risen from the dead, and for some 40 days... He remained on earth as the resurrected Lord, uh, manifesting himself to his disciples and to hundreds of others, uh, verifying that he was very much alive. And before he ascended back to heaven from whence he had come, God the Son, uh, he uh, made a promise uh, to the disciples. It's actually a promise he had made before, but it was reiterated one last time that the Holy Spirit would come upon them. They were to wait in Jerusalem until the promise was fulfilled of the Holy Spirit. Now, Acts 1 tells us that along with the 11 true disciples, uh, one uh, apostle had proven false, along with those 11, there were about 110 believers that were gathered together in an upper room in Jerusalem and were told what they were doing. In verse 14 of Acts chapter 1, all these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer. Devote means to concentrate on a particular pursuit. During this period of waiting, Jesus had ordered them, wait in Jerusalem until the promise is fulfilled. They did not understand that call to wait, to be interpreted as just being passive, doing nothing. Instead, they understood that waiting upon God means seeking God actively. They were not to actually engage in mission Uh, in Jerusalem or beyond yet, they were waiting for power from on high, but they rightly understood that waiting upon God meant seeking His face, entreating Him to do for them what He had promised to do for them. This was the pursuit that they concentrated upon. They were united in purpose, they were united in spirit, and they were united in this activity of seeking God's face. Jesus Christ had already risen from the dead demonstrating his triumph over sin and over death and over Satan. Christ had already ascended to heavenly glory and was even now seated at the right hand of the Father. But they recognized they were powerless to do the work that had been assigned to them until the Spirit came. So they're seeking God's face for the desperately needed and for the graciously promised Spirit. Now, it's in this context that the church is born. As we move into Acts chapter 2, that glorious passage opens with the words that when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. They're they're still in this upper room. They're seeking God's face, and it's in that context that the Spirit came down and the world has never been the same since then. The promised Holy Spirit uh, gave immediately the power that Christ had promised to his people, and that power, of course, manifested itself on that first day in an extraordinary way. Perhaps there has never been a sermon like that sermon. 3,000, we read in Acts chapter 2, were converted as the apostle Peter preaches, and it was an extemporaneous message, uh, not something that he had been uh, working on in the study for the last two weeks uh, the Spirit comes, extraordinary phenomena attend. A crowd gathers wondering what is going on. Peter just responds to their question. And extemporaneously, uh, drawing upon scriptural knowledge, he, he expounds what is going on and how this is the promise of God coming to fulfillment. And literally 3,000 souls are gathered in on that uh, holy day. My point is this. It was out of the womb of the followers of Christ being all together in one place, devoting themselves to prayer that the church was born. Now, we recognize that our redemptive historical situation is different from theirs. We live on this side of the Spirit having come. We're not waiting for the first coming of Jesus. We're not waiting for Jesus to be crucified for His people. We're not waiting for Jesus to rise from the dead. These great redemptive historical events have already happened. We look back upon these wonderful deeds that God has done. Likewise, we look back upon the Spirit having come. This great and gracious redemptive work of God has happened. We are the people of the Spirit. We should never think of ourselves fundamentally as the people who are still looking for the Spirit. We possess the Holy Spirit by God's sovereign grace. The Spirit has come. That's why we're Christians. That's why a church has been born. But... We recognize from the book of Acts and from other parts of the Bible that we can yet experience ongoing fillings of the Holy Spirit because we'll see this same church praying again for the Spirit to come. We can experience new dimensions of the Spirit's presence and of His power, and there are promises that we are still waiting upon our God to fulfill in larger measure. And so we can learn, even though our redemptive historical situation is different from what was there in Acts 1. We can learn principles that just as they were waiting upon God to do what He had promised to do, so we too wait upon God actively in prayer, seeking Him to do what He has promised to do. We think of a promise like that found in Psalm 81 and verse 10, where God speaking to His chosen nation Israel said, "'I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt.'" Open your mouth wide and I will, what? Fill it. Have we known every dimension of that promise being fulfilled? Is that not a promise to continue to bring before the great God who owns the cattle on a thousand hills, who has power to sway the nations? Let us open our mouths wide uh, to God by way of prayer, asking Him to fill it. You think of the promise that, Peter recognized was being fulfilled at the day of Pentecost. Acts 2 verse 17 quotes from Joel 2 in the last days it shall be God declares that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Yes that began to be fulfilled in a marvelous way at Pentecost but that, that has not uh, come to completion yet. We're still praying that that promise would, would come to fruition that God's spirit would come on all flesh. So, first observation: Church is born; the church is birthed in the context of God's people gathered together, entreating God in prayer. Second observation: The newborn church grew spiritually and numerically in connection with the continued devotion to coming together for prayer. The newborn church grew spiritually and numerically in connection with a continued devotion to coming together for prayer. Note Acts chapter 2, verses 41 and 42. We read, So those who received his word, that is, the word of the Apostle Peter, were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And they devoted themselves to the Apostle's teaching and fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. 3,000 souls all baptized on that day. Can you imagine what that would have been like as a service? Uh, and can you imagine your congregation growing by 25 times uh, through one day? Uh, be like your group here going from, say, 30 to, what, uh, 750 uh, through, uh, through, through one message and God coming down. Can you imagine what that would be like? Uh, Well, that's what happened in that place, Acts 2, uh, 42, again uses the word devoted to describe uh, not just 120, but now 3,000 plus followers of Christ. Just as before they had concentrated on the particular pursuit of prayer, now they concentrate their attention and time on four particular pursuits. Each one was a corporate activity an activity in which the brothers and sisters were united as one, acting together in concert. They came together to give careful, united attention to the apostolic teaching. They were hungry for the Word of God, and they would come together again and again, concentrating on wanting to learn truth from the apostles concerning their Lord, concerning His ways, concerning His requirements, and so forth. Second, they came together as one to share fellowship in the new life, that had been imparted to them through the Holy Spirit. We see in Acts that had a very practical dimension to it, as well as an obviously spiritual dimension to it. Third, the early church came together as one to celebrate and remember the Lord's death through the Lord's Supper. That's what is meant by their being devoted to breaking of bread together. Fourth, they continued to concentrate on the pursuit of praying together. They devoted themselves, the ESV says, to The prayers, and it's interesting that the ESV uses the definite article there, it may be uh, drawing attention to the fact that there were stated times of corporate prayer, hours that were designated where the people of Christ would come together in order to seek their God's face as a united group. We know that there were such appointed hours of prayer because Acts 3 begins by drawing our attention To the hour of prayer. Acts 3 begins on the note Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour, i.e., three o'clock in the afternoon. And that seems to strongly suggest that at this particular time in the history of the church, what their pattern was here in these early days where extraordinary things were happening, that at least many of God's people were free to and committed to meeting in a place in the temple at 3 o'clock in the afternoon and this was the hour of prayer. This is when they would give themselves to coming together to seek God's face. It was on the schedule. It was recurring. Uh, There have been times in the history of the church where a fixed daily time of corporate prayer has been incredibly blessed of God. Let me read um, a narrative of one such time. This comes from Don Whitney's book, spiritual disciplines within the church, and uh, in a chapter on corporate prayer, he uh, he talks about what happened uh, that began in New York City back in 1857, 1858, and uh, bear with me as I read uh, several paragraphs. It's a, it's a fascinating narrative. He speaks of Jeremiah Land Lamphere, an inner-city missionary in New York City associated with the North Dutch Reformed Church. And as this Mr. Lamphere prayed for God's direction in his work, the thought came to him that a noontime prayer meeting might be beneficial to businessmen. Invitations were distributed, and at noon on September 27, 1857, Lamphere opened the door to a third-story lecture room at the church building. For half an hour, he prayed alone. Not a soul came. In response to the invitations he had printed up and distributed, uh, he was uh, thinking that this was something that could benefit the kingdom of God. Not a soul came uh, to this initial meeting for 30 minutes. He just went ahead and he prayed by himself. But then at 12:30, he heard the step of a solitary individual on the stairs. Then another, and another, until six men gathered for a brief time of prayer. The second meeting was held a week later. 20 attended. The next week, attendance doubled to 40. The group decided to make the prayer meeting a daily event. And we understand they were in a place where it was fairly convenient for that to happen, in a place like New York City. On October 14, Lamphere noted that more than 100 were present, including many who did not know Christ and who were asking how to be saved. How wonderful that people would come to a prayer meeting not because they're committed to the cause of Christ, but because they're interested in the cause of Christ. They've heard about a movement going on. They're they're, they're curious. They want to know what's happening. They come to the prayer meeting. Within two months, the daily gathering filled all three of the church's large lecture rooms. By mid-spring, there were noontime prayer meetings at 20 different locations across the city. Soon, Prayer meetings and conversions began to multiply in other cities. In some areas, prayer meetings that began with six or seven people increased to six and seven thousand. Within months, the impact was felt from coast to coast. Sometimes as many as 50,000 people per week were being converted. It is estimated that out of a population of less than 30 million, at least a million Americans professed faith in Christ in one year. I'm not sure how Mr. Whitney uh, gathered those statistics, but I'm confident that Mr. Whitney is one who doesn't believe in easy believism and decisionalism. He's one who understands what real conversion looks like. And uh, he believes that this is an accurate historical record of what happened. Isn't it significant that right before the Civil War would erupt in our nation with thousands going into eternity in what humanly speaking was an untimely way, that God the Spirit came down And so many were converted right here on the threshold of uh, the Civil War taking place. It's extraordinary. That's not ordinary, but it's an illustration of what God has done in history when His people, beginning with just one man, took seriously a call to let's come together for prayer. Let's make this something that we concentrate upon. Let's make this something that we view as a priority. Let's make this something that we view as belonging to the first things. Let's come together as Christians and let's pray. Did all 3,000 plus believers uh, continue together in one large room or a large portico so that they could all be together in one another's presence? It would seem certain that at some point that became impractical and there began to be... Uh, some measure of segmentation into different groups because people needed to have space to be able to gather together. And in that day, where there were no microphones, people needed to be able to hear one another. So we uh, um, have reason to think that not every believer in the early church was always meeting all together as one group. But what's clear is that corporate prayer was not secondary. It was not tertiary. It was something that they concentrated upon. We likewise want corporate prayer to be front and center in our churches. And I want to encourage you in that. That this is something that would not be viewed as a secondary thing. That this is not something that would be viewed as belonging to kind of the second tier of things that we're committed to. I want to encourage you to think, just based on the book of Acts alone, as prayer being something that is a defining, distinguishing Feature of what Emmanuel Church is about. We are a people who believe it is absolutely necessary to seek the face of God together. We are a people who are convinced that among our highest privileges is that there is a God who invites us to seek His face together. Who not only summons that, but encourages that and gives wonderful promises to what happens when even two or three are gathered together in His name. And you know that that context, many of you will know Matthew 18, is in the immediate context of the church. That what's being referred to is the church coming together. When Jesus spoke of two or three gathering together in His name and God being present in a special way. My first experience of a church that was Reformed and Baptistic uh, was a church called People's Bible Church. It's now known as Grace Baptist Church down in the... Greenville, South Carolina area. Uh, I was in college and uh, was invited to go to this church and later became a member of it and uh, began attending their midweek prayer meeting. And the way they did prayer corporately was that everyone would gather in the sanctuary and there would be uh, a brief uh, devotional. Uh, There would be some direction given as to things that uh, were a focus for prayer that night. And then everyone would break up into pairs. You'd have men with men, women with women. And throughout the sanctuary, people would be sitting together. It was kind of a Reformed Baptist speaking in tongues. So it was a, a, a holy cacophony of noise going on in the sanctuaries. You had all these people praying out loud in their little uh, twosomes throughout the sanctuary. That, that's the way I first experienced corporate prayer. There are different ways to do it. You don't necessarily have to do it. with coming together. One man stands up and leads out loud where everyone can follow along. But the point is, is that... It's Christians coming together. And it's Christians coming together as one, united in purpose, united in determination. We are going to seek our God's face together. A third observation from the book of Acts. We note that corporate prayer was conspicuous in the early church's response to opposition. Coming together for prayer was conspicuous, prominent, in the early churches, response to opposition. According to Acts chapter three and chapter four, uh, the miraculous healing of a lame man uh, by Peter and John created an opportunity for the gospel of the risen Lord Jesus to be sounded forth yet again. Hundreds, perhaps even thousands, uh, were uh, stirred to come together, asking about, what, what, what has happened? This man that was lame is now walking. Christ is preached. Once again, many hundreds are converted. Peter and John are arrested because the powerful religious leaders of the Jews were disturbed that they were accusing, the apostles were accusing the religious leaders of having been responsible for the crucifixion of the Messiah and even more disturbed by their testimony and preaching that this Messiah was alive. And they insisted that it stop. They condemned these men. They threatened these men. And they uh, told them, that uh, that if they, that they must desist from preaching uh, this uh, name of Jesus. Well, verses 23 and following of chapter 4 tell us how the apostles and the growing congregation of believers responded. Picking up at verse 23 of Acts 4, when they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priest and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God. And said, O Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. And then you can go through. I won't take time to read the the passage right now. What you have is a prayer that's full of faith and that is full of Bible. They recognize that this is Psalm 2 coming to fulfillment. This this conspiracy, this organized effort to stamp out the Lord in his anointment. This is what the Bible said would happen. But we know who reigns over all the world including all opposition. And they plead with God to their credit and to the credit of the God who had saved them. Not for safety. They pray for new dimensions of boldness in the midst of this fresh expression of hostility. They're not looking for an easier life. They're not looking necessarily for a safer life. They're looking for grace to be faithful in the midst of opposition that they recognize it was not going to go away. Jesus had been crucified. They weren't expecting a softer life, so they prayed that God would fill them afresh with His Holy Spirit, giving them boldness to be faithful in continuing to speak the message, even in the face of these severe and real threats. They prayed together that they realized that they didn't have the strength in themselves. That they realized that they must continue to witness, but they needed power afresh from on high in order to persist in the work and to know God's benediction upon the work. As has been noted, they, they prayed the Bible. They brought God's own word to them. The same readiness to pray together when challenges arose uh, comes to the surface again in Acts chapter 12. Acts in chapter 12. This is the passage where James, the brother of John, one of the f- first apostles, is taken into custody, and then is killed, probably beheaded. And uh, you have, uh, just as you had with the first martyr Stephen, a very tangible expression of how real the hostility was, of how determined the hostility was. Here you have one of the uh, original apostles being put to death. How did the church respond? Peter was also arrested. There was a holiday going on, and so he was kept in jail over the weekend, The clear inference is that Peter's head was about to come off as well. Uh, So James is dead. Peter is in prison. What do we read? Verse 5 of Acts chapter 12. Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Skipping down to verse 12. Peter's miraculously released by way of angelic intervention from the prison and from the guards to which he was chained. Verse 12, having been release, released, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, where, uh, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were what? They were seeking God's face together. It was night, maybe the middle of the night. Granted, this was an extraordinary crisis, but extraordinary crisis called for extraordinary action, and it was their instinct as the people of God. That what we need here is we need God's intervention. We need to seek God's face together. Turn over with me, please, to the book of 1 Timothy. The book of 1 Timothy, and we're still considering uh, the church's practice of coming together for prayer in the face of opposition. But I want to suggest to you that this corporate response to opposition, praying together was not just occasional, not just something that the church did when these extraordinary crises crises arose, but rather something that became a regular feature of the church and what was mandated for the church in light of the pervasive opposition that was a continued reality for the New Testament church. First Timothy is one of those books in the Bible, like First John, uh, like the Gospel of John, we have a very explicit statement of purpose. We know exactly, under God, why the epistle was written. In 1 Timothy, that statement of purpose is found in chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. Paul had left Timothy in the important church at Ephesus. Paul was hoping to return to Ephesus. He writes in 1 Timothy three fourteen and 15, I hope to see you soon, but I am writing these things to you in case I am delayed. So that you may know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support or buttress of the truth. There we have a very clear statement of purpose. Timothy, uh, I'd, I'd love to be there, be able to talk to you in person, but I'm not sure when I get there, I'm writing these things down. This is why I'm writing. So that you, the pastor, the apostolic delegate, may know... And teach the people so that they may know how one ought to conduct themselves in the household of God. We do things according to to God's will. He's the head of the church. He's the chief pastor. And I'm going to write to you concerning some things that ought to be done at God's house. Well, what's the first thing he talks about in this epistle that ought to be done in God's house? That should mark the behavior, the conduct of the people of God in the house of God. Go back to chapter 2, verse 1 which begins with the words, first of all. Okay, very orderly book, clear. You can outline it. I'm writing so that you'll know how you ought to behave in the household of God. Here's the first thing. Okay, First Timothy 2, 1. First of all, then I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people. I'm going to go ahead and read down through verse 8. For kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, Godly, dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I'm telling the truth, I'm not lying. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Now, why would the Apostle Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Ghost, mandate, first of all, the church needs to be committed to prayer, to intercession, to supplication, to seeking God's face together, more particularly, why would he say, this is a first of all things so that you can live peacefully and quietly? I mean, doesn't that sound very American? I mean, we're, we're all for peace and quiet and comfort. Uh, yeah, let's pray for more peace, more quietness, more comfort. Well, we know, don't we? That, that is not what the Apostle Paul was after. This was a man who was quite accustomed to hardship, wasn't looking for easy street, wasn't expecting the people of God to live on easy street. What, what, what's he talking about? In this mandate, first of all, pray. Well, he's not explicit here, but I believe that there's good reason to infer that in the backdrop of his thought is just the recognition of how pervasive, how intense, and how hindering, in many respects, opposition to the gospel was. Let I me mean, just think again about the book of Acts and just drawing upon your, your acquaintance with the book of Acts. How many times is the Apostle Paul himself running out of town or being dropped down over the wall or his disciples are begging him, you need to be quiet, we're going to get you out to another city. Because of what? Because of the opposition. That was so intense, that was so hostile. And this is a qualifying note to the fact that back in Acts chapter 4... The brethren didn't pray for safety, they prayed for boldness. A qualifying note is that there is, there is a time to take your Bible and go on to the next town. Uh, that there is a time to be thinking about maybe we shouldn't stay here in the midst of the riot, and in the midst of the stones, and in the midst of the fierce opposition. There's balance here. But that, that was such a pervasive presence in the early church, I believe it forms the backdrop for 1 Timothy 2, and why, interestingly... 1 Timothy 2 in a first of all this calls us to pray for kings and all those in authority. I mean, how many times have you been to a prayer meeting where, oh, well, you can count on it. We're going to be praying for the nation's leadership. In my experience, that hasn't been very prominent. Why would it have been then? Well, so often it was the leaders who were the devil's tools in the opposition. I mean, the, the New Testament's written against the backdrop of emperors who at times just made it policy. We're going to exterminate these Christians. National sport at the stadium, come see the Christians burn. Come see the Christians fighting the lions, in effect, fed to the lions. I mean, this was the context in which the New Testament was written. So, so Paul says, first of all, you need to be praying. Why? Because, not because we want an easy life, we want the Gospel to be able to go forth. Amen. Unhindered. Unmolested, with as little distraction, relatively speaking, as God would know to be good for His cause. Mm-hmm. The opposition is different in our day and in our culture. But we're foolish if we think that opposition is gone. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We're not facing lions. Mm-hmm. We're not facing the prospect of being hung up on a post and set aflame whereby we give the Roman pedestrians light to see their way home. That's a mercy from God. That could change. But in God's mercy, we don't... It is so hard for us to even fathom such a life. We are so accustomed to being safe and secure. But brothers and sisters, we live in a day where freedom of speech is being threatened. And more to the point, the devil has not diminished with time. The opposition we face is not so much hostility as it is indifference. We live in the richest country in the world. People have got their big screen TV, they've got their club fees paid, and they can go play golf, they can go to the lake, they can do this and they can do that. Things that are not evil in and of themselves, we as Christians enjoy some of these good gifts from God. But you know what I mean. Who's the most... Impossible person to bring into the kingdom according to Jesus himself. Who's the one that, it'd be like a camel passing through the eye of a needle for that person to be converted. It's people with wealth. We're surrounded by people with wealth. People who are finding their good things or desperately trying to in the here and now. And behind that is Satan and his legions determined to keep the veil over the spiritual eyes of souls that they might not see the attractiveness of Jesus Christ or the need for him. The opposition's still real. It's just changed its face. I believe it's against that backdrop that the apostle Paul said, first of all, first of all, I want you to be given to prayer. He's not talking about private prayer. He's talking about to the church this is what I want the church to be given to. Pray. Pray for those in leadership. Pray for all kinds of people because Christ came to save all kinds of people. And what we're, one of the main things that we're about is seeing people saved. Pray. Pray. A fourth and final observation from the book of Acts note that it was in the context of corporate prayer that godly, gifted men were set apart and sent out to engage in the work of ministry. It's in the context of the saints of God coming together to see God's face that godly and gifted men were set apart and sent out to engage in the work of ministry. Some of you are already there. Acts chapter 13 which records for us the initiation of the first organized missionary activity. Missions have been taking place. Christians have been talking about Jesus, and as they had been scattered out of Jerusalem, they continued to talk about Jesus. But this is the first record of an organized missionary endeavor rooted in the local church. Acts chapter thirteen. They were in the church at Antioch, prophets and teachers, Barnabas, others are named, including Saul, whose name would soon become Change to Paul. Verse 2, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart from me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Verse 3, then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. Verse 4, so being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Samaria, and from there they sailed to Cyprus and the great work of world missions had commenced in a definitively new way. This is, this is an organized, deliberate, intentional effort. It's rooted in a local church in Antioch. They graciously give up their two primary leaders, the guys they were most accustomed to seeing in the pulpit on Sunday morning. They graciously sacrifice to give these two unusually gifted men up to the work of missions. It was clearly a God thing. How did God make it known? How did God orchestrate it? Is it not significant that it's in the context of they are gathered together. They are fasting. They are seeking God in an intensified way. They are worshiping. They are praying. And it's in that climate that God says, look, it's great what's going on here, but I'm concerned about other places. I want to take some of your resources. I want to send them out. Here are the two guys. And that's what happened we know that God alone ultimately can thrust out laborers into the harvest we have our seminaries Uh, we can make our plans Uh, we can do things to nurture and to train but what we most need according to Christ himself not the only activity but the foundational activity is to pray to the Lord of the harvest right to send out men into the harvest fields. Matthew 9, verses 37 and following. Jesus said, The harvest is plentiful, the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord to send out laborers into his harvest. And the early church was doing this. They were no doubt including in their prayers, Oh God, multiply laborers. Oh God, use us in some way for the furtherance of the cause. Send out from our ranks. People called by your name, holy men, holy women, gifted, equipped, send them out, oh God, into the needy harvest fields. And God heard that prayer. And God said, yes, I'll do that. I'll uh, I'll bless you in this way. I'll bless you by subtraction. I'll take away so that I can expand. It was the privilege of the early church in Antioch painful to have that experience I need to close Um, I'll tell you at least three ways in which the devil will labor to hinder you from praying together in a sustained year by year, decade by decade way Uh, at least in these three ways the devil will seek to discourage you and to hinder you and to uh, cause your praying together to be less rather than more. Other things could be said, but I draw your attention to, th- to three. One is that he will very subtly, in a way that you can't hear out loud, in a way that you would not ever articulate out loud yourself, he will seek to persuade you that other activities are more important. Isn't this exactly what happens in our private lives as Christians? We, we don't get up in the morning and say, Dear God, my Heavenly Father, there's much to be done today, and I would pray if it was really important, but I know that other things are more important. So I just trust that you're going to bless this day, and I'm going to get on to the more important thing. We would never talk in that way, right? We, we, we realize that is insanity for a believer to think such things, to pray such things. But do we not again and again cave in to just that underlying mindset. That other things are more imperative in the moment, in the hour. That, that there are justifying reasons to not pray. I'm not trying to put you on a guilt trip. I'm not, I'm not suggesting. You know, everyone here, you ought to be praying two hours or your spirituality is really suspect. That's not where I'm coming from. I'm just making the point that we find ways to not pray. And there's a devil behind that. You'll find yourself as married couples thinking there are other things more important with respect to our children than praying together for them. And you'll find the same thing as a church. And there are important things to do. Scores of important things to do. Be on the alert against the devil. Subtly conveying that message to you. Second, the devil implicitly and at times he'll yell this, conveys the message again and again that prayer is too hard. And prayer is hard. Bless God, not always. Oh, don't we love those times where we feel like we're on uh, a, a river, we're on the new river, and we're on a raft, and we are not just floating, we are flying. Oh, may God multiply the times where we are, we are riding the rapids of, a, of an upbeat of spiritual feeling and faith, and we just we're loving praying. It's not fighting. It's not working. It's, it's, it's delight. Praise His name. He gives us times like that, but not always. And there is something about prayer that many people would say is, makes it the hardest single aspect of, 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 of spirituality to really engage, especially in intercessory prayer, And the devil will will seek to dissuade you from it because it's difficult. And there are dimensions of corporate prayer that are especially difficult. If you do take a format of having one brother lead, as you do in your worship service, one brother, like Pastor Alex, leads in prayer, while the rest of you uh, would join in silently, do you not find it difficult many times to stay attentive, to stay engaged? How tempting it is to let your thoughts wander off. Uh, The devil knows it's difficult. Thirdly, the devil will tell you that prayer does not work. Now again, praise the name of Jesus. There there are many times where we feel such conviction over how much prayer does work. Because God kindly demonstrates the power of prayer through answering them in wonderful ways. And we're encouraged and we, we feel fueled afresh to keep praying. It works. It's effective. It prevails. But God tests His people. And God builds the faith of His people. By oftentimes, like Abraham of old, the great paradigm of faith, giving them a promise and then calling upon His people to wait. And and when we're waiting for God to do things that we long to see Him do, but we haven't seen Him do, we haven't seen him answer certain prayers. And weeks have gone by, and perhaps years have gone by, and perhaps decades have gone by. Uh, we, we, we will be vulnerable at times to the devil saying, at least for you, prayer doesn't work. Usually the devil's not so bold as to say prayer doesn't work for anybody. Uh, in my own experience, I'm convinced that prayer works. I find myself more vulnerable to the thought that prayer won't work for me mm-hmm. in certain ways. Mm-hmm. The devil's good at pointing out scenes from my life, and patterns of lust and patterns of sin. And, and the devil, he'll go after us with that argument. It doesn't work. Let us grow in our conviction, y'all, that it is a great and wonderful privilege that the true and living God is so near to those that call upon him. A great Old Testament passage. If it was true back then, how much more true is it for the New Covenant community? Deuteronomy 4.7. Moses on the plain of Moab. He was about to die. The people were about to go into the land of promise. And as he spoke to Israel, Deuteronomy 4.7, he said, What great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us whenever we call upon Him? Moses knew firsthand how stiff-necked the people of God could be and were characteristically in the Old Covenant. But he still made this appeal to them as one who wasn't going to be able to go into the land of promise himself, as one who lost the privilege of leading the people into the land of promise because of their unbelief and their rebellion. He still had this appeal to make to their children now grown. What nation, what people are there who has a God, a real God, a true God, not just an idea, not just a, a hope-for fantasy, a person, a real, infinite person. What people are there who have a God so real, so powerful, so near to those who call upon him? Let us grow in our conviction that this is who our God is. the God who beckons his children. Again and again. Talk to me. Talk to me. Ask. I will give it to you. Seek. You will find. Here's heaven's door. Just knock. You'll find the door opened. This is is our God. Now, I really do close on this note. What about people here who feel that God... maybe is not willing to hear you. Uh, maybe you don't uh, see yourself as a Christian and maybe you have good reason to not see yourself as a Christian. Well, let me close on this note. This, this God who is near to his people, to those who believe in him, to those who call upon him, this is a God who reveals himself in Isaiah 1 and throughout the whole Bible in this kind of way. He says, come, let us reason. It's another way of saying, let's, let's talk. Together, this is what God says. Come, let us reason. Together, says the Lord, though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. One of the most glorious aspects of the God who made us and the God before whom we soon will stand Is that that's his real disposition towards people like us? God is never in this life telling anyone stay away. That's always the devil's logic and the devil's message. Clean up, get yourself fixed up a bit, and then you can come. But you cannot come until you you do go through some reformation. You need to improve your morals. God is always saying, come to me. As you are. No matter how much you've blown it. Let's talk. Talk to me. I have words to say to you. And his main word is that no matter how deep dyed your transgressions are, I can take care of that. And I have, through sending my son, that whosoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. This is a God we're seeking. This is a God worth talking to often. Privately, at home, and in our churches. May God help us to be those committed to and desirous of, oftentimes knocking on heaven's door. Let's pray. Our God, we thank you for the opportunity to consider these things. I apologize for having spoken too long, but Lord, take these things that that we've considered from your word and oh God we pray that you would cause them to live and to bear rich fruit in all of our lives Uh, we thank you that you are so ready to forgive our sins we thank you that you are so ready to hear from people like us we thank you oh God that you don't just wait for us but you seek us we thank you this is the grand message of the Bible Uh, a God seeking sinners from heaven, sending His only Son, the Great Shepherd going after the sheep. Oh, Lord Jesus, continue to come after us and draw us into closer engagement with You. We pray in Your blessed name. Amen.